Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we have begun a series on the law of God, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And what maybe is new for some of you, not knowing your background, it may be new that you're hearing that this is how we love God. It may be that you grew up in a setting uh, where the law of God was old news. It was bad news. That's Old Testament stuff, right? We're New Testament Christians now, and the Old Testament is old news. If you've heard that or you've thought that, I really want to challenge you in this series to see, no, 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 it's the same Lord of all. It's the living God. And in the law of God, He has shown His people how they are to live, how they're to be His people in the earth. And so this morning, we'll actually look at the first of the Ten Commandments. Last week, we looked at the prologue to the Decalogue. I'm going to read that again, and the first commandment. This is a short reading altogether. But let me put it to you in this way before we hear it again. The Ten Commandments, you could say, are how we, God's people whether Old Testament or New, it's how we've been awesomely distinguished in the earth. We've been set apart to represent the holiness of our God and to honor Him in the way that we live our lives. And He loves it. He delights in it when His people live for His glory. So maybe a better way of understanding that or explaining that would be this. Imagine if you sent, or if you have sent, a son or a daughter off to college, off to university, or maybe to a a, a local public high school as a high school student. And imagine you as a Christian parent, a Christian father or mother, taking a hold of that son or daughter before you sent them off, and you said to them, now listen, you've been awesomely distinguished. I perhaps would say, you're a Patrick. And when you go to the university, there are going to be people doing all kinds of things. They're going to be thinking and believing all kinds of things. But remember who you are. You're not to become like them. You're a Patrick. And you want to walk in wisdom and faithfulness. That's essentially what the Lord has done with His covenant people Israel. Having delivered them from bondage, having promised them land, and they would be a blessing to the world, he now pulls them aside and says, now this is how you're to live. This is how you live in the world. You're my people. Don't become like the other nations. You're awesomely distinguished in the world. Which is not to say you're better than anyone, but you're set apart for a holy purpose. That is essentially what the Ten Commandments are. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray now that as we take a few minutes to consider your word and as we seek to rightly apply it to our lives, 
Lord, would you be our teacher? Would your spirit do what you've promised it can do to bring life and to bring hope, to bring newness in every way? Lord, do that for us. If we are weary Christians, would you revive our weary souls? If we're not Christians, would you show us, maybe for the first time, the beauty of what it is to trust Christ and to be a part of His church? We pray it together in Christ's name. Amen. So for years, you know, for about 20 years, I was in campus ministry working with students. I worked with youth and families before that. And I'll just say it's not at all unusual to see something like this play out. You've seen it. It's been a part of your life most likely. But when a young man has been spending time with a young woman, or vice versa, eventually, after some number of weeks, some number of dates, some amount of time spent together, where other people are noticing how much these people are being together, And then finally, friends start pushing on them, and they start asking, now, what's the nature of this friendship? What's the nature of this relationship? How serious are you? Well, that means it's time to have the DTR. The define the relationship conversation, right? Uh, How many times have I had guys come to me and say, hey, I'm kind of at this point with spending time with this girl, and I don't really know where we are, and I would say, it's time to sit down and have the DTR. You're in a state of uncertainty, which is no place to be, right? You remember, some of you remember having to get the courage up to say to someone, can we talk? And you want to have the DTR. You want to define the relationship. Are we official or are we unofficial? Are we just friends? Or is there something at work here, right? You know what I'm talking about. We've all lived through, uh, whether for our good or for our ill, uh, having the courage to have that conversation and having an outcome that's come from it. I know it sounds casual, but can I say that what we're seeing here in Exodus chapter 20 and the Lord giving His law that reflects His image and His likeness This is a DTR relationship between Yahweh and His people. This is where God comes down to the mount and He tells them how special, how treasured of a possession they are. That they really are the apple of His eye, He says elsewhere. And He is going to awesomely distinguish them from the earth by saying, now you're the ones... You're the people who I'm giving my ten words to. And that's what Decalogue means, the Ten Commandments. I'm giving these to you. They are to shape you. They're to inform you. They are what you are to represent in the world. Okay? So this really is Yahweh's DTR with His people. And how will they respond? And how will we respond? Because you have to respond. Just as in a human relationship, I think it would be unusual for a guy or a girl to spill their guts and say, this is where I stand with you. And for that person to say nothing. Or to turn and walk away. 
Now that may have happened in our human relationships, but it doesn't happen in this one. It's not to. The Lord has come and awesomely distinguished the people. Now what has He said to these people? I have three points for us this morning. I have three quotes for us this morning. And my hope is to really open our eyes to see what does it mean for the Lord to give us this first commandment. The first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. That there's only one God. There's only one true God. What does that mean? It means quite simply this. We were made to worship the one true God. Well, what does it mean to worship? What does that mean when we say worship? In the Bible, worship is to prostrate yourself physically. It's to fall before and show reverence, to show homage, to literally give oneself, to give their life in worship. So the things that we worship, we prostrate ourselves before. Or another way of saying the same thing of the heart is that we worship by giving the devotion of our heart to a thing. And Yahweh says, you prostrate yourself before no one but the one true living God. And you devote, devote your heart fully to the one true and living God. And what we also know about worship in Scripture is that worship transforms a person. It starts to change the person to become like the thing they are worshiping. And just as I've said that the law was given to us that we may become more and more like the Lord. If we worship the Lord rightly, if we're in His presence, if we become like Him, what will we look like? Well, we'll look like a people that are reflected by the Ten Commandments. That will make up our character, our nature, and our likeness. So the question to ask, each of us to ask is, what are we prostrating ourselves before in everyday life? What are we devoting our hearts, our calendars, our time, our attention to? And what image and likeness are we being transformed into? Those things will tell us what we're actually worshiping. So, <clears throat> what is it? Fill in the blank for yourself. What would the people around you say you're prostrating yourself, you're laying your whole life out for? You're spending your whole self, your energy, your passion, your devotion, the thoughts of your heart, the devotion of your heart? And what is that making you look like? We live in a culture that is all about work and committing yourself and focusing. And can I say those are good things? Christians do those things. But we do them for the glory of the Lord and not for the glory of ourselves and not for the building up of some self-empire, some self-kingdom. But it is a good question to ask. What is it that's demanding your life, your soul, your all? What is it you're freely giving yourself to? Yahweh says to, to His people, you're to have no other gods. There are to be no other things that you look to, that you pursue, that you are charmed by, except for the one true and living God.
John Calvin says this. You may have heard this quote. He says, The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, even from our mother's womb, an expert at idol-making. Idols and false gods being synonyms here in this sermon. So John Calvin says, look, the youngest of us from our mother's womb, we are born idol-makers. We will make our own idols. We will fashion things to worship. We will find a way in and of ourselves. We don't need any help from anyone to learn to worship a false god. It's in us. And I think he's right. What do you think? Is that how you see your heart? That it's an an idol factory cranking out false gods, false idols all the time? Something to worship, something to hold to, something to look to for hope and joy and pleasure outside of the one true God and all that he said to be true? I think John Calvin's right. We prostrate ourselves before false gods. We devote our hearts to false gods. And we're being transformed. We're becoming like the very things that we're worshiping. Second point. Sin has perverted every one of us to worship other gods. Just as John Calvin said, we we will manufacture, we will create idols. Every human heart is corrupt and will do that. And that is the context to which the Lord is speaking to Israel. Now remember, in this time, Israel had been in bondage for 430 plus years. And during those 430 plus years, before the Lord delivered them from their bondage, they had started to take up attributes and likeness of the nations around them. The other nations had kings. The other nations had idols and false gods. And this started to affect Israel as a people. They started wanting to be like the other nations. They started to let their worship be like the worship of other nations. So you may be familiar with names of false gods such as these. Molech, Dagon, Marmaduke, Asherah, and Baal. Those were all false gods around Israel. And they began to influence Israel and how they saw worship. And the Lord said, what did He say to His people? You shall have no other gods. You shall have no other gods before Me. One true God. As I said all that, I'm reminded that years ago with our older children, we did the children's catechism. And, and I think it was my oldest son, Hamilton, as he was, would recite back to us the answer to the question, how many gods are there? There's only one God. Only one God, he would say. And he would get ardent about it. Only one God. And that was exactly right. There should be passion that there's, there's only one God. He was our little ardent monotheist, we called him. And so we all should be. There's only one true God. And yet we are surrounded by false gods, just as Israel was, that are offering things they can never deliver. So what do the false gods offer then and now? Well, a false god is whatever gives us desirable power, 
or desirable possessions, desirable pleasure, desirable purpose, desirable identity. If you want to put your finger on the false gods of your life, ask yourself, where are you looking for power, possessions, pleasure, purpose, and identity? The nations around Israel looked to Molech and to Dagon and to Marmaduke and to Asherah and to Baal for all those things, for sexual pleasure, for children, for fruitful wombs, for a fruitful harvest, they would look to the false gods to provide those things. That's what the pagan nations did. And the Lord said, don't you ever look for those things to come from anyone except for the one true God who is your good shepherd, your true provider, and so as we ask that hard question of application, it's easy to see in Israel's life, you know, and how the Canaanites had false gods and worshipped them and looked to them for pleasure and success and power. But what are the things that we're looking to in the 21st century? What are those false gods? Well, they're the same kinds of things. It's where you're looking for success and for validation. It's if you think you have to have the newest stuff to be happy. Apple puts out a new product and you're just not satisfied until you own it, right? You have it. Now I own it. Now I feel significant. I feel stable because there's not something that I don't have that I, that I want. Where are you looking for power and control? What image professionally are you trying to acquire to satisfy you? What body image are you trying to acquire or maintain to feel satisfied and at peace? Your sports and athletic accomplishments, if you're a student. Your grades, if you're a student. Your education. Your means of sophistication. These are all the temptations of false gods that will fail us. They can't hold up the weight that we try to prop on them. Our own weight. They can't hold it up. Dan Allender in his book, The Cry of the Soul, says, It's God's jealous love that both unnerves us and draws us to Him. His relentless pursuit, His fierce hatred of any rival and his incomprehensible willingness to anguish on our behalf captures our heart for his love. His jealousy is our shield. It is our promise of eternal protection and passionate exclusivity. It is our confidence that the divine lover will win his bride. He says the Lord has a jealous love for His people. He won't share us with any other God. That's what that means. The, God, the, the, the living God, the one true holy God, demands that His bride's attention be on Him because He's worthy of it and because He's faithful and He's true. 
And so you and I, the sinners that we are, we are so easily captivated and distracted by other loves, other interests, other gods, but they're always pulling our attention from the one true God who alone can fulfill those desires that we have. So ask yourself, how have you been led astray? What is the aroma in the air that captured your attention and turned it away from the one true God? It's not whether or not that's happened. It's happened for all of us. And Yahweh says, I have a jealous love. My love is is exclusive for my people. And you shall have no other gods before me. In actuality, with our false gods, we're actually merely worshiping our own desires. And we'll be crushed when they prove that they can only fail us. I want you to think about that. The false gods that you and I worship, those false gods can never deliver. They can never deliver because there's only one true God. Only one true God. And we'll be crushed by those desires. We'll be disappointed by those false gods. They cannot deliver what they are promising because they are empty. They always have been. They were empty in the Old Testament. They were empty in the New Testament. They're empty now. Thirdly and lastly, but since there is only one true God, Everything else we worship with our lives is a false god. It's a false god. This is how idols cut two different ways. First, the worship of a false god, it is stealing and robbing from the one true God the worship that He alone desires. And secondly, the false gods are actually robbing us. They're robbing us of the joy, the pleasure, the what we hope that they can provide. We're the ones being robbed and crushed in the end. And in that way, idols are cruel. False gods are cruel because they disappoint us. That's all they can do. Our hopes are always dashed when we put them anywhere except for in the one true God. In the end, false gods deplete us, they fail us, They mock us. Now let me turn the screws of application a little bit tighter than I did a moment ago. Michael Scott Horton, in his book, The Law of Perfect Freedom, really challenges 21st century Christians, all of us, with these words. It's only when we see our hobbies, interests, sports, entertainment, vocation, relationships, food and drink, clothes and cars as particular expressions of the goodness of God and that they are to be used with respect and moderation, that we can truly enjoy these gifts. What we now call addictions, God has called idols. All of God's good gifts are meant to raise our eyes in thanksgiving to our benevolent Heavenly Father, not to fix our eyes on the gifts themselves. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying we are prone to worship the gift and not the giver. 
And that's got to be reversed in the Christian life. We worship God and we give thanks to Him for His provision, His care, His granting of success and pleasure and happiness. But we never worship the gift. We worship the giver. That's what we're called to do. And the giver is named. He names himself as Yahweh, the God of the covenant, who is the provider for his people, who delivers them from bondage, the very bondage that these false gods try to keep us captured in. So consider your heart. Have you been worshiping the gifts? Have you been addicted to the gifts and neglecting the giver? the giver of every good and true and perfect gift. You know, this conclusion is really captured well by Solomon in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to close with this. It's not on the screen, so you'll have to listen. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you remember King Solomon, man of great wisdom, a man who had everything that this world, every pleasure that this world can offer. And in in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, that's hard to say, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he gives us what I call Solomon's bottom line. What's his bottom line conclusion as it would pertain to all this? Listen to him in his own words. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. I tried cheering myself with wine. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became far, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He's filled his life with all these pleasures, food, drink, women, gardens, He's had everything. And what does he say? Here's his bottom line, verses 10 and 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That's just a more poetic way of saying there is only one true God. 
Worship false gods. Worship the things of this life. Worship what Israel mistakenly worshipped in the Old Testament. In Molech, in Marmaduke, in Asherah, and all the false gods. You'll be left empty-handed in the end. And Solomon says, don't be left empty-handed. There is only one true God. Know Him. Find your fulfillment in Him. Israel, truly, there are no other gods worthy of your worship. If your heart and your attention, if your focus and your pursuit has been misguided, Solomon warns all of us this morning, you're going to be caught empty-handed in the end. Oh, what a miserable place to be, to be caught empty-handed in the end. But take hold by faith of the one true living God, and you have everything in the end. Let's pray that that would be true of every one of us. Lord, may we not lift our souls to another. May we seek the face of Yahweh, the God of Jacob. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. And just like Israel of old, we know what it is to chase after false gods. May we not prostrate ourselves or devote our hearts to anything but the one true God. And Lord, as we worship you, may we be transformed more and more into your likeness and your image. May we see the beauty and the grace of your call to be worshipped and you alone in everything we are and everything we do. Now bless us, Lord. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.